So um, we are starting this Sunday on a series through the Gospel of John, or part of the Gospel of John, uh, starting at the, the end of chapter 13, going through the end of chapter 17. Some people have called it Jesus' Farewell Discourse. Uh, so we're, we're going to take a chunk of that each Sunday and work our way through that uh, passage up until right before Easter Sunday. So we're going through the season of Lent. We haven't started on that yet, but this uh, passage you'll see uh, is very appropriate for that season of the year as uh, Jesus approaches the cross. So I encourage you, knowing that uh, we're walking through that over the next few weeks, that uh, you would read it at home and reflect on it and come prepared, prepare your heart to hear what God says uh, to you uh, in your times in the Word and in prayer. And so John chapter 13 to 17 is where we're focusing the next few weeks. So I was thinking about, uh, because this is Jesus' sort of final words, the incarnate Christ, his final words to his friends, his disciples, I was thinking about last words. So often, you know, if you, you think about movies, um, you know, when, you, when, when there's a dying, somebody's dying, they're on their deathbed or they've just been shot and they're on their ground and their friends or their loved ones gather around them and, and they gasp out their last words, right? They, they, you know, get that final word out. This is what's most important to me. It's what I have to say before I die, right? Usually, you know, if you have that opportunity and you have the ability physically to say something in your last moments, um, you're probably not going to talk about football, as great as football is, or, or shopping, or whatever. You're probably going to talk about something very significant. And if you have people around you who love you, hopefully, when you're in those moments, uh, friends and family, you, you will want to address some words to them, right? You'll want to say how much you appreciate them. You'll want to say how much you love them. Maybe in some cases you'll want to say, you know, I forgive you, or please forgive me, or those kinds of things. Those are moments for significant weighty words. So these chapters are significant and weighty things that Jesus says to his friends or Jesus prays for his friends and uh, in extension for us. So we need to pay attention. It's important that we pay attention. I've been in situations over the years with families at someone's, beside someone's bed when they're passing away, or even with a family, our own family members. Uh, and in most cases, they don't get to say anything because they're just so sick they can't say anything really or communicate. But usually the family wants to say something, don't you? And I've sat with my dad in that situation where I was able to say what I wanted to say to him and hope he can understand and hear me. Those are meaningful moments. You don't want to waste those moments. They're very important. I was thinking about, imagine this, a, a family of, of adult children. They're, they're sitting around the bed in palliative care with a parent, knowing that uh, she's near death. And uh, they, as all families hopefully would do, uh, would say nice things to her. They, they express their love. They uh, tell her what a good mom she was and how much they appreciated her and how much they love her, how much they'll miss her, that kind of thing. They, if they're believers, they pray for her. I've been in situations where people sing uh, worship choruses or, or hymns around that bed. It's, a, it's like a sacred moment. But imagine in this, this family of uh, brothers and sisters around that bed, uh, there's divisions amongst them, 
right? They're, 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 there's unspoken things. You know, they don't talk about it in the presence of that person. But there's, there's unforgiveness, there's bitterness, there's words that have been said that are harsh and that have been held on to for years and years and years. And they're divided, they're not united. And uh, the person that's in that bed close to death is the one who in the past held them all together. So they're kind of expecting that when that one is gone, who's, what's going to happen to the family? We're going to be scattered. This was the one that brought us together, that held us together. This was the one that her or his deepest desire was that they would love one another, not be at odds with one another, that they would forgive one another, that they would say those things, that they would confess those things, that they would get right with one another. If he or she was able to say that, that would be her last word. Please, children, love one another. So as Jesus is with his friends, these were disciples, but these were his dearest friends. These were the people that had spent every moment with him, uh, every moment of every day for years with him, had given up so much for him, followed him wherever he went, heard his teaching, saw his miracles, and now he is preparing them for the time when he is going to go away. And so he has an important message for them. His last words. In these chapters, he's going to talk about the time when he is going to depart from their physical presence. He's going to talk to them about the glory that God the Father is going to give him. It may not be what they expected, but he's going to get glory. And he wants to encourage them in those final words with how to live well as a follower of Jesus. What does it look like to live well as a follower of Jesus? And what does it look like even more to live well as a follower of Jesus in in a culture and in a time where not everybody appreciates that fact that you are living for Jesus? And sometimes you'll face rejection and sometimes you'll face persecution and it won't be easy. So how do you live like that? And so if you begin this chapter, chapter 13, and you read through to the end of chapter 17, you'll see, like bookends, he talks about love. Chapter 13, verse 34. Say this, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And chapter 17, verse 25, right at the end of this section, he says, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. So the fact that he, at the beginning of this, these last words, this final speech, that he puts love at the beginning and love at the end, means that this is important. <laughs> You need to pay attention to this. And I, and I would say, sort of as a theme of what we're going to talk about today, to live in Jesus is to live in love. And to be a follower of Jesus is to be part of a community of love. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But this is no ordinary love. This is radical, this is risky, this is sacrificial love. But this word, love, is to exemplify us as followers of Jesus more, I think, than any other word. So that's the first thing I want to tell you about. The second is that Jesus himself exemplified or modeled what love 
looks like. So we have this, the context of this passage is the Passover. It doesn't, uh, in John, it doesn't go into as much detail about the actual uh, supper and communion, what we call communion, but it's the Passover. Jesus is together with his, his disciples, and he says, I know the hour is coming. He's anticipating his death. They don't, I don't, they haven't put together the pieces. They don't quite understand it, but he knows it's coming. And he's going to leave the world, and he's going to return to his father. And he says he's loved these disciples during his ministry on earth, and he's going to love them to the very end. It's not going to fade out at the end. Uh, he's not going to, you know, in the face of suffering and rejection and pain, he's not going to lose that sense of love for his followers right to the very end. He's going to love them. So I titled this message, Love in the Midst of, because uh, not only does uh, Jesus love them right to the end, but in a way that they have never really experienced before. Because I think you and I know that it's easy to, it's easy to love people that love you. Uh, it's easy to, to even like people that like you or have similar interests to you or think the way you do, but it's not always easy to love people. Sometimes people aren't very lovable. And yet Jesus wants to teach us that kind of love. And so this is not the kind of love that you get on Hallmark cards or you see on those nice little pictures on your Facebook pages about with kittens and puppies and that kind of thing. Not kittens and puppies are great. But it's not that kind of love. It's much deeper than that. This is a kind of love that, that even survives and thrives in the midst of evil in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of violence and rejection, in the midst of love, this love, or in the midst of loss, this love continues on. It's love beyond degree. And so he, in the early part of that chapter, demonstrate what, in one way what, uh, what that looks like. And so he takes off his robe and he gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' stinky feet. And he takes on the role of a servant rather than Lord and Master. And he says, this is how I'm demonstrating my love for you. And so do this for each other. He takes on the role of a servant and washes their feet. And he even washes Judas' feet. You ever thought about that? Amongst all of those disciples. And it's not that he was surprised when Jesus went off and betrayed him. He knew what was in his heart. He knew what was going to happen, and he washed his feet nonetheless. Just like the others, he showed his love to them, to him. He knew that this Judas had so somehow so become warped that he had spent all this time with Jesus, saw what Jesus did, heard what Jesus taught, knew the love of Christ poured out to him, and yet somehow his heart and his mind was so warped that Satan had somehow gotten a hold of him. And so in chapter 13, verse 27, it says, When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered him. So this is a picture of Jesus loving right to the end, showing us right in front of the disciples' eyes what does it look like. He talked about loving your enemies. Well, here's what it looks like. I'm going to wash this man's feet. He's going to go and betray me to death. He's going to take that money that was ours as followers of Jesus that funded our our journeys. He's going to take it. We entrusted it to him. He's going to use it for blood money. And yet he serves him. So this 
kind of love is so different than anything these disciples had ever experienced before. And then there's Peter, washed his feet as well. There's Peter, who Jesus knew as well, even though Peter, like Peter would, uh, you know, insists indignantly, you know, I will go wherever you go. I will even die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, no. (laughs) You're going to, in fact, deny me three times. When the pressure is on, you are going to deny that you even know me. And yet Jesus doesn't condemn him. He washes his feet, Uh, Later on in the story, he restores him to fellowship. Even Peter, the one who denied. So this is a depth of love that we seldom, if ever, see. You know, there's a a technique in movies or in books in literature. It's called foreshadowing. And so you get a little hint, something comes up in the story where you know something's coming. Uh, You know something bad's going to happen. The story is about to turn. And uh, you don't always know what that is, but there's a hint. And it's not always spelled out completely, but you know something is coming. And so Jesus is foreshadowing some things. Early, we read uh, 13, 18, and 19. He says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand, so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on in 31 and 32, and he has this, this kind of convoluted sentence that uh, uses the word glory over and over and over again, or glorified. And so in verse 31 and 32, he says, the time has come. So there's something coming. The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. They don't know exactly what that looks like or means. And God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son. And he will do so at once. So hearing that word, those words, you know, repeated over and over again in two verses, they didn't really understand, I think, what glory meant. I mean, they would probably have thought it like we would, like something glorious is amazing, beautiful, praiseworthy, and that's, that's what it means, right? So the works of God, the works of Jesus are glorious. We've, we've seen it as disciples. We've seen him work in amazing, powerful ways. That's glorious. That must be his glory. There must be more of that coming. Right? Jesus is going to come into, into Jerusalem and he's going to come in as a glorious conquering, conquering hero. That's what we are expecting, but that's not what he means. The glory of Jesus comes, in this case, through the cross. And this is what I think it means when he says at the beginning of that chapter, he's going to show them the full extent of of his love and he's going to show that by being glorified and glorifying God the Father through his death on the cross. That is the place more clearly than anything else where the incomparable goodness and love of God is displayed to the whole world. So Jesus had hinted on this earlier. He says now the time has come for the son of man to enter into his glory. And uh, in, in, earlier in the gospel, he says, unless a, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many kernels, a plentiful harvest of new life. So there's not only a, a foreshadowing here about the cross and his death, but there's a foreshadowing here of the resurrection and what will result as a resurrection, which is a whole new people, a whole new sense of life and resurrection life that will spring up 
through that death and resurrection. That's the glory that we're talking about here. So Jesus says, a new commandment I'm giving to you. And uh, actually, it doesn't sound very new in some ways, right? Because it's not the first time God talks about love and loving God and loving your neighbor, right? The greatest command and the greatest commandment are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's not new. That's really old, right? But I think the new part of that is how deep this love goes, how deep the Father's love for us that he would actually go all the way to the cross, that God the Father, the Messiah, the Lord of all creation would lay down his life for us and then call us to follow him in this life and this community of love. That's the new in this new commandment. We're able to see a glimpse of really the very heart of God. You know, sometimes I, I haven't really thought about this whole betrayal, the betrayal of Judas and, and uh, Peter's denial, and, and how does that, I, I think about it, I think we often think about that from the perspective of, of Jesus and how that felt for him to be denied, to be betrayed. But what about the disciples? What about the, the men who had traveled together with Jesus to see one of their very own, the one that they had trusted, that was part of them, that experienced all that they had experienced, betray the Lord. How did that affect them? You know, probably if it was me, we would have been sitting around for weeks and months and maybe years talking about Judas and what he did and maybe uh, talking about Peter and say, how could you, you know, how could you be a leader in this new movement, followers of Christ, after what you did, after denying Christ, how could you be one of the leaders of this movement? And we would grumble and complain and, and talk about that for years, probably. And so Jesus, right after Judas walks out the door, you notice that? After he left, went out into the night, right after Jesus walks out of the door, the rest of the disciples are there. He says, I need to give you a command, and it's a new one. Love one another as I have loved you. They needed to hear that at that moment and they needed to repeat it over and over again to remember because it's easy to get caught up in bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and strife and division. Look at the history of the church. <laughs> it's not pretty sometimes. So uh, I put a quote in your, in your bullet and Carolyn Lewis wrote this, when evil seems to be having its way, when those you thought were close who you thought you could trust abandon us when the actions and words of others clearly come from hate and suspicion and prejudice. Choose love. And so Jesus says, he commands it, and he says, dear children or little children, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a word of affection. He loves these men. He knows what is coming. He knows the grief that they're going to feel. He knows the confusion that they're going to face. He knows the persecution that's coming. And so he knows that they need to hear a clear word from him that will keep them together, focused on him. And he calls them to love. He calls them to a new way of living. 
characterized by love, not characterized by fear, not characterized by I'm just going to protect myself from other people, not characterized by distrust, but characterized by love and a radical kind of love that they had never seen or experienced like this before. Because to live in Jesus is to live in love and to be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of a community of love. And that's the heart of it. And that love is not meant just for you to receive. It's meant for you to share. It's not just because you can't command feelings. I can't stand up here and say, I want you to love now. Feel it. Okay? Feel it. You got, you got it. Sandra's got it. It works for Sandra, but I don't <laughs> but you can't command feelings. You can't have any any of you. I've done this. I'm conf- it's another confession. Tell your wife, stop feeling that. She says, I'm upset about something. Stop that. Get it. You'll be happier. Doesn't go over real well. I don't know why. Seems logical to my logical brain, but doesn't seem to work real well. Doesn't go over real well either. So you can't command feelings. So it's got to be more than just a feeling. It's got to be action. So Jesus, or actually the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, 11 to, 13, 11 to 18. I'm just going to take a piece of that. It says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and, and sisters. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. It's not just about saying the words. It's not just about having the warm, fuzzy feelings for each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. And so there, there are stories about the Apostle John that have been passed down uh, through the ages. And it, the story, one of the stories is that as he got older, it's going to be what, hopefully this is what I do as I get decrepit next, next year. I don't know, <laughs> whenever that happens. When I get old and decrepit, that, the, you know, that he preached over and over the same message. It was a very short message. And his message was, little children love one another. Every time they saw him, little children love one another. That's all he preached as he got old, right? And the, the, he, he lived it out too, though. He didn't just say the words because there's the other story about someone who was connected with the church in those days who was a, just a real bad character. He was just really the kind of guy that you would say, that guy will never turn his life around. Even God cannot save that guy. And yet uh, John, in his love for this man, said, said to him, you know, I'm, I'm willing to die in your place, to take your death for you if you'll come to know the Savior. And so that's love. Where did he learn that? <laughs> he learned that from Jesus. So here's the fourth point. Love is meant to be experienced and enacted in community in spite of all their failures. I mean, Judas was kind of a fatal flaw, right, in his life. But Peter was restored to fellowship in spite of all his failures, and the other disciples weren't always stellar either. They blew it lots, just like you and I do. Uh, Jesus calls them into community, a community of love for one another. And it always starts with God, doesn't it? it? It always starts with God. We can't program becoming a loving, you know, 40 days to becoming a loving community. In 40 days, we'll start today, and in 40 days, you guys are going to be so loving, it's going to change the world. <laughs> well, I guess, maybe it's possible, but I can't program that. I can't buy a kit uh, from the bookstore and, and uh, you know, just apply that. It's, it starts with God. It's his initiative in loving and forgiving us. That's where we start. And so, um, 
Let me just remind you of some of these scriptures. John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. He's always first. And 1 John 4, 11. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to to love each other. God initiates it. Love is at the heart of God. Love is at the heart of the community of God, the followers of God. And so not to love one another is a denial of God's love. Not to love one another, John says in 1 John, is to, you know, really, you kind of have to wonder whether you really know God at all. If you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. You can't say you love God and hate your brother and sister. That's contradictory. It doesn't fit. And so we are called and invited uh, into a community. So one of the things I picked up, we've, we've been, we just finished off our reframe course last Thursday night, which is a great course. We're going to hold it again in the future. I'll let you know when that is if you didn't do it this time. But one of the images that they talked about in the last session was this idea of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, being a community, and a community that's characterized by love. The Trinity is a community of love, the speaker said, and he invites you by his Spirit into that community of love and enables us, you and I, to love one another because sometimes we don't even like each other <laughs> so so how are we to love each other unless god by his spirit invites us into that community into his very life the life of the father son and holy spirit in community in loving community and says here's how you do it by my power you can love one another to live in jesus to live in that community is to love to be a follower of jesus is to be a part of a community of love you will have to do that, <laughs> for sure. Many times over, right? So that's the fourth one. The last one is this. Uh, there is a mission. So it's not just about us and having nice feelings for each other and, and doing nice things and loving things to one another, but there is a mission that God has in mind. Loving one another is not just an end in itself. You know this verse, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So God so what? Loved the world. Who's that? It's more than just us. <laughs> so God so loved the world. So this mission of love and learning what it means to be a community of love has to flow out. It has to overflow into the community, uh, into those who don't yet know him. This radical kind of self-sacrificial laying down our life for one another, being willing to die, whether literally or figuratively, for each other, will change the world around us. People will see this and take notice. Church historians uh, looked at the, at the church in its early, early years and write that the genuine love and unity of the church was a major cause, perhaps the strongest single cause, of the spread of Christianity. And lack of love and unity is a major obstacle to people coming to believe. And that's true. The church is afflicted with disunity and lack of love has been for centuries. And so that has become a barrier, a burden in terms of 
people coming to believe. But when the church loves each other, Jesus says, people will know you're my disciples, and by implication, they'll be curious and want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because there's something about it that is so immensely attractive. One of the things that's really kind of been burdening me recently is the news. I shouldn't stop watching it. But um, the news about the church. And so you see daily stories about um, the Catholic Church and sexual abuse of children and adults, vulnerable people under their care, abused and covered up year after year, decade after decade, century after century. God have mercy. It's not a new thing, right? But now it's in the world. It's in the, in the news. So now, what are we known as as the church? Abusers. I read the comments. I shouldn't do that either under the news stories. <laughs> um, but lest we you know, uh, want to slam all Catholics, Evangelical churches have been doing the same thing. Leadership in evangelical, many high, number of high-profile evangelical leaders um, accused and, and uh, stepped down from their positions for sexual abuse or abuse of power just in recent days. So we're not free of guilt. So that is horrific. It does get exposed. Yeah, eventually it will. So that's not what we want to be known for. That's not what we want to be known for. We want to be known for our love for one another. And let me put it this way. um, We should be known for our love for the most vulnerable, the weakest amongst us. So it's not a suggestion. (laughs) It's a command. Your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. This is the mission, right? To, see, to help people to see the love of God and to experience the love of God. How are they going to do that? We're not just going to tell them about it. We're going to show, you can tell them, but you can show them as well by your life and your love for them. As we are invited into this community uh, that is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of love, He, by His Spirit, works in us to be a people empowered by his spirit to love one another and to love the world as he loves the world. And that is more powerful than anything else. So I'm asking myself this question. What am I known for? What are we known for? What do we want to be known for? (laughs) I hope we want to be known. When people think of Lakeside or people think of the Church of Christ in Salmon Arm, that we are known for our love. So by God's grace and by his spirit, may it be so.